You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Fired Up. It's Monday. That means we're here to talk some politics. This is Steve. I host the show each week right here on WJMSRadio.com. Thank you all for tuning in. As always, we've got a jam-packed show this week. I got a lot of stuff I want to cover, so let's get right into it. And we'll start off, as always, with our COVID update. We are at 29.8 million cases of the COVID-19 disease, and 542,000 people have uh, succumbed to the disease and died. Uh, although, on the, the upside, the uh, infection rate and the death rate continue to lower each week, week over week. So we are seeing you know, progress made as we combat this disease across the nation. Uh, to date, we have 120.9 million doses of vaccine having been administered to Americans. That does include both people who received both doses and the, the single dose or first shot of the two-dose set. So we are making progress. We are getting people vaccinated. The infection rates are going down, even as more states uh, continue to open up areas of business and pleasure activities. Uh, we saw in the news where uh, Florida, in certain areas of Florida that were just uh, mobbed by spring break partygoers, uh, actually have instituted some curfews and beaches and party venues have been ordered shut down at 8 p.m. simply because they have been overwhelmed with the number of people that have gone down to Florida to uh, celebrate spring break and to let off some steam and you know get out from being cooped up in the house. Uh, unfortunately, uh, if, if history is any indicator, we are going to see some spikes in COVID infections come out of this because, of course, mask wearing is not really being uh, strictly adhered to and social distancing is, frankly, totally out the window. So, you know, we'll see how big a spike we get from spring break as, you know, all of the young people and not so young people who are down partying uh, return home, whether home is in Florida or, you know, around the country. Uh, I know people come from all over the country to go down to Florida for spring break. So it's going to be one of those ones where we'll have to keep an eye on it and hopefully uh, things will not get too, too bad. So that being said, as always, uh, you know, we, we are making progress uh, against the COVID vaccine, but there's still a lot of work to do, uh, a lot of vaccines to be administered, uh, a lot of you know, education and information continues to flow. Please, everybody, uh, until you get your vaccine and even after you get your vaccine, make sure you wear your mask when you need to wear that mask, when you're in you know, crowded areas or you're you know, around uh, people who aren't socially distancing. Please make sure that you're wearing your mask. It still remains one of the best ways to keep you from becoming infected and from infecting others. Uh, make sure you're staying socially distanced. Wash your hands. Don't touch your eyes, nose, or face. You know, all of the things that uh, should be almost second nature now as we're more than a year into our battle against this pandemic. So hoping all of you will stay safe and, you know, keep up the good work. Let's keep pushing and we will, you know, drive this vaccine down into the ground. All right, so let's move on. We have a lot to go through this week. Um, I'm going to hit you with uh, some numbers and statistics. So you might want to get a pencil and paper handy. Um, and we're going to talk about a few things on this show. Uh, we're we're going to work our way to something I brought up on this show uh, late last year. And uh, just to, you know, sort of spoiler alert it for you, I'm, I want to talk about, toward the end of the show, about uh, third political party. So put a pin in that. We'll, we'll head our way there. Um, but to start off, you know, in the news, 
this past week, we have seen a, a battle uh, being fought in the Senate between Republicans and Democrats over what's to become of the filibuster. Now, for those of you who may not understand what a filibuster is, uh, it is a mechanism uh, exercised by the minority power in the Senate and the House uh, in order to uh, suspend forward movement on a bill uh, until the majority party can raise 60 votes in, in order to close the filibuster or invoke cloture as it's called and move the vote forward to the floor for a final vote. Uh, over the years the filibuster uh, started out as a, a, a physical event where if a senator wished to to filibuster a bill uh, he or she would need to uh, stand be recognized at their desk and then they would proceed to talk and and just continue talking to what is called hold the floor and uh, so that the the progress on the bill could not go forward and this was done for a, a long long time uh, but in the 70s there were some changes made to the Senate rules and, and regarding the filibuster where it was no longer necessary to just stand and talk. All you had to do was to indicate to the chair that you wish to filibuster this bill and that was it. You didn't have to do anything else until the majority party could raise 60 votes uh, to invoke cloture, shut down the filibuster and move forward with the bill. And, you know, over the, the last uh, 10 or 15 years or so, this process has been just super used primarily by the Republican Party, but Democrats have used it as well when they've been in the minority, uh, just to, to obstruct, stall, and delay votes on bills that they, they disagreed with. Uh, if they did not have the votes to outright vote the bill down, then the filibuster would be invoked in order to delay the process uh, you know, as long as they could to keep the bill from coming to the floor. Well, there have been some uh, points introduced in the Senate version of the filibuster, and what is being discussed is uh, options uh, being led by the Democrat Party to revise the rules on the filibuster to require uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, it would require a, a quorum be present. That means that uh, you know, the majority of the Senate would need to be physically in the Senate chamber. And also that the senator who is raising the filibuster would need to, as, as it was in the, the quote, old days, close quote, uh, to stand at his or her desk and hold the floor uh, for as long as uh, he or she could uh, to delay voting on the bill. And you know, for those of you, uh, the, the, the younger set who may not have, have seen the movie, uh, Google uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie from way, 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 way back uh, starring Jimmy Stewart. And he is filibustering this bill, and he literally stands there and talks until his voice is gone. He has no voice left. Um, but it allowed for you know debate and discussion among the the delegations uh, to try and come to a solution. So the the Democrats, uh, among other options, uh, are looking at either. The possibility of eliminating the filibuster, uh, which in and of itself uh, would raise uh, some problems. The Republican Party uh, under Mitch McConnell is promising that if they eliminate the filibuster, that uh, basically the Republicans are going to let loose the hounds of hell in, in the Senate, and it, it's just going to basically stop. Uh, they will obstruct, as they say, everything. Any minor issue that has to come forward will need to be voted on and will need to carry at least a majority vote in order to proceed. So basically they're going to gum up the works. 
Now, if the Democratic proposal of going back to a talking filibuster uh, comes to be, uh, guess what? Republicans are going to do the same thing. They're going to, to use that filibuster to gum up the works, to slow the progress of the Senate to a crawl, uh, and, and basically, you know, kill as many bills as possible just through not ha getting anything done. Sounds familiar? Yes, it's a strategy the Republicans have been using since uh, 2010 when they took the majority in the Senate and basically obstructed everything that the current, the administration then, which was the administration of President Obama, was trying to move forward. Uh, you know, hence the, the nickname that Mitch McConnell ended up giving himself uh, as the Grim Reaper because it was his desk where bills would go to die. So that's one thing. And, you know, it, it, it points to, as I said, where we're going in this conversation to uh, a, you know, a path to, to third party uh, in, in one particular way. Some of the other ways, um, you know, are just the overall uh, approach that Republicans are taking with some of the key agenda items of the Biden administration. Uh, there's been a bill sitting in that was came out of the last Congress, the 116th Congress, and has been sitting in the Senate. Uh, it sat there for, you know, two years until it finally uh, died at the end of the 116th session, as bills do, and was reintroduced at the start of the 117th session. It is known as H.R. 1. Uh, it is a, an act to address uh, voting in America, and basically, in a nutshell, it is designed to uh, undo a lot of the changes that have come out of the Republican Party over the last two decades uh, with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court uh, uh, eight or nine years ago, as well as a lot of the activities that are being done in states to uh, suppress, reduce, restrict, uh, the 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 non-republican vote in states around the country. Right now, there are some 43 states uh, that have more than uh, 245 uh, pieces of legislation on their dockets to restrict voting in in some way or another. And this has become a very serious uh, matter of contention in the Senate, in particular. Uh, even though they are they are looking at the House version of this bill, which is called H.R. 1, the Senate version, which is called S.R. 1, which you will also hear about if you're listening to the media, uh, basically does the same thing. It, it is the same bill in the Senate version. But uh, most notably, on uh, Saturday the 20th, Ted Cruz uh, was... Uh, participating in a conference call and it was recorded and a copy of that recording uh, was uh, issued or, or leaked out to a, a couple of media sources. Daily Costs uh, has uh, reported on this uh, with their reporter Charles J. And again, this was on Saturday, March 20th. And you can go to the Daily Cost website and, and see the full transcript of it. But I'm going to read a few of the highlights and let you know what uh, Ted Cruz is saying and, and some of the, the backstory behind it. Um, so, you know, it, it, it starts off, you know, and, and again, this is from the Daily Cause, and this is reporting by Charles J. And it says, uh, Cancun Cruz has been caught on tape saying there should be no compromise on implementing harsher voting restrictions, warning that the GOP's future is at stake if the Democratic-backed H.R. 1 legislation becomes law. It shows the stakes in the battle within the Senate over passing H.R. 1. Democrats must themselves make an all-out effort to pass the Senate version of H.R. 1 because the severe voting restrictions under consideration across the country could suppress the Democratic vote and ensure that an increasingly authoritarian GOP gets a firm grip on power for years to come. 
Uh, it goes on to talk about how the Associated Press got a copy of the recording of Cruz's comments from one of the participants. And uh, this conference call was uh, with state lawmakers organized by the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, uh, the corporate-backed conservative lobbying group that produces model legislation for Republican state legislators. Uh, essentially, stepping out of the article for a second, uh, this group will literally, if there's an issue, they will write the legislation. They will write the text of the law and distribute it to state uh, you know, houses and state senates for enactment and voting and, and so forth in each state. That's why a lot of laws in the states are strikingly similar because they've come from the same author. So going back to the article, uh, and again, here it's quoting Senator Cruz, H.R. 1's only objective is to ensure that Democrats can never again lose another election, that they will win and maintain control of the House of Representatives and the Senate and of the state legislatures for the next century, Cruz said. All right, let's step out from the article again, because uh, lo and behold, this sounds very similar to the, the premise of the Southern strategy, which is something you know, we've talked about on this show many times over, over the last year, uh, where it is a, a confirmed Republican strategy to control state legislatures and make them as Republican as possible, uh, whether it's through uh, you know, voter restriction or gerrymandering or other techniques in order to uh, strengthen the voting power of Republicans at the state level, which means that they then get to control more voting power at the federal level. So essentially, Cruz is saying that the Democrats are going to do uh, if this legislation passed, that this will set the Democrats up to do what the Republicans have been doing since the days of Richard Nixon. So, you know, th there's, there's some somewhat blatant hypocrisy there, but be that as it's may. He goes on to say, H.R. 1 says America would be better off if more murderers were voting. America would be better off if more rapists and child molesters were voting. Again, this is uh, quoting Ted Cruz. Uh, the article um, goes on to talk about the anti-abortion rights group, the Susan B. Anthony List, has partnered with another conservative Christian group to fund a new organization, the Election Transparency Initiative, in, in, in order to fight the bill. Freedom Works, which focuses on tax cuts and smaller governments, has put up $10 million dollars for a campaign run by Kalita Mitchell, a prominent Republican attorney who has been a, a Trump advisor. The conservative advocacy groups also mentioned the Heritage Action Committee is running a $700,000 ad campaign to back the harsh voter restriction bills now under consideration in the Georgia state legislature. Uh, in response to this, the Brennan Center for Justice, which supports expanding voting rights, has reported that more than 250 bills, as I mentioned, have been introduced in 43 states that would change how Americans vote. The measures include limiting mail-in voting, cutting hours for early voting. This effort follows Trump, Trump's lies about election fraud and efforts to overturn the election results in several key swing states. What H.R. 1 would do is would require states to automatically register eligible voters, to offer same-day registration, limit states' ability to purge registered voters from their roles, and restore voting rights to former felons. It would also mandate that states offer 15 days of early voting and allow no-excuse absentee voting. Democrats say that since the Supreme Court struck down pre, uh, key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, Republicans have introduced measures to suppress the votes of people of color and young people by introducing such measures as voter identification requirements. 
So, you know, it, it's clearly that, you know, this is a call to arms for Democrats. And the article goes on to conclude, and if it takes eliminating the filibuster specifically for voting rights legislation, then Democratic senators must take such action. So, you know, as I said, battle lines are being drawn around uh, voting rights, and, and this is continuing to escalate. So, you know, we, we will see how this progresses. Clearly, you know, if, if you are in favor of uh, an expanded access to the polls and, you know, elimination of restrictions on voting, then your call to action is to get in touch with your senator and your congressman and your state legislators and let them know, you know, uh, along with your friends and their friends and their friends, uh, exactly how you feel. So, you know, there, there's a lot to, to roll on that. And it is something that, you know, we need to keep focused on. And of course, you know, we will continue that. So in related, and, and a, a lot of this I, I already mentioned in the prior article, um, there was an, a, an article that came out on March 3rd uh, that talks, it was talking about the Dem House Democrats looking to pass election reforms. Uh, uh, again, it talks about H.R. 1, which is called the For, For the People Act of 2021. Um, you know, and again, it, it, it would just do what, what I've mentioned, um, you know, and, and this comes out of the result of the 2020 election um, and, you know, targets, you know, the, the, not only the swing states, but a total of like 43 states in the country. So, you know, there, there is a lot of concern and a lot of energy being pumped in to uh, to voting in this country, uh, the GOP is pulling out all the stops. You know, warning that it could be absolutely devastating for Republicans. Clearly, the fear of the Republican Party is that HR one uh, and its its counterpart in the Senate uh, would, as as I said previously, uh, severely restrict the ability of Republicans to gain elected office, both at the state and federal level. And, you know, uh, again, the hypocrisy of their position on this is somewhat glaring in that this is exactly what Republicans have been doing through their Southern strategy uh, for 50 years. Uh, now, all of a sudden, because the Democrats want to do it, now it's a big, big, big mess. Uh, and, and this goes into what we're going to move into next, uh, and that is talking about, you know, what what is up with the American political system? Um, so we're, we're going to take our first break here. And when we come back, we're going to expand uh, the the balance of the show talking about the American political system and some things I think are are necessary to fix it. Uh, and we will pick that up right after the break. You're listening to WJMSRadio.com. This is Fired Up, and I am Steve. We'll be right back after the break. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. And welcome back to Fire It Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. So let's continue. We still have a lot of stuff to get through with the remaining segment of the show. Um, first off, let's start off with a couple of questions. Uh, if you've watched the 
you know, mainstream media, wherever you get your, your news sources from, you know, whether it's, you know, the big five on one end or, you know, Fox and OANN and Newsmax on the other end, whichever side you fall down on uh, as far as your, your media consumption, uh, I think it's fair to say that you, you'd have to, if you, you know, step back and look at it objectively, you'd have to almost come to the conclusion that there is, you know, something very fundamentally wrong or dysfunctional about our, our system of government right now. Um, what we have, you know, we have, and, and we'll use the example of the Senate because it, it's the easiest one for us to illustrate the point. Uh, right now, the Senate is 50-50, Democrats and Republicans, uh, with uh, the president of the Senate, currently uh, Democratic Vice President Kamala Harris, sitting as the tiebreaker vote and giving the Democrats control of the Senate. Uh, this after, you know, eight years or, or longer of the Republicans being in control of the Senate and prior to that having the Democrats in control of the Senate. And you kind of see where I'm going here, that we keep flip-flopping back and forth right around this 50-50, uh, 49-51, uh, you know, 47-52 uh, kind of numbers in the Senate. And, you know, it, it's like nothing can get done because so much of the Senate's time is taking up with undoing what the previous Senate session did uh, and, you know, and, and continuing, you know, policies of uh, obstruction and, you know, brinksmanship and game playing and so forth. And, you know, the debates we've seen over the filibuster and the you know, just passed uh, American Rescue Plan, which, you know, uh, received overwhelming support uh, and, you know, the, the discussions going on regarding immigration policy and, you know, economic uh, struggles that continue due to COVID and the, the, the battle against the COVID vaccine itself. All of these things just seem to have the House and the Senate chasing their own tails. Um, you know, if we, we break it down, and as I said at the outset, you know, we're, we're going to be, you know, throwing some numbers out there. And, you know, one of the questions that I often raise is, you know, how these senators can, can go home and face their constituents with such problems as we're facing in this country, and yet they do not seem to be taking any substantive action to, to fix the problems or to correct the issue uh, or to address it. And give you an example, the American Rescue Plan had a 70% national polling uh, result of Americans being in favor of it. Uh, yet the Republican side uh, would lead you to believe that this was you know, a, a, a highly destructive bill that it costs too much and it, you know, it, it kills the deficit and so forth. While on the same hand, they artfully neglect to mention the fact that not two years earlier, the Republicans had passed a $1.7 trillion tax cut uh, that favored primarily the wealthiest individuals in this country, but yet still managed to pull $1.7 trillion out of the income stream for this country, essentially adding that to the deficit, requiring deficit spending in order to cover the financial obligations left hanging by the tax cut. Uh, in the same vein, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan is going to do a similar thing. You know, it is, you know, there isn't a, a, a stack of $1.9 trillion sitting in a warehouse somewhere that they're just going to go crack open to pay for this. Uh, it's going to require adding to the deficit. But, you know, it, 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 it illustrates the point I'm making in that when it is something that favors, you know, constituents that the Republicans favor, uh, you know, wealthy individuals and corporations, uh, you know, the Republicans are the party of yes. 
But when it is something that fa that favors, you know, the working class and, you know, the the everyday American, uh, the Republicans become the party of no. So, you know, whether it's the American Rescue Plan or the 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 current, as we just said in the last segment, the H.R. 1 S uh, S 1 uh, voting rights bills or, you know, foreign policy or these things, the Republicans are very quick to to get into obstructionist mode uh, unless it is something that favors you know one of their favored uh, constituencies and it you know it raises the question how you know the Republicans can you know go home and you know especially you know in in states that you know are are with higher poverty rates for example uh, which we're going to talk about uh, and you know, look their their constituents, the people that elected them into office, in the eye, uh, and exp and and not explain why they've made the decisions they made. Uh, so let let let's do some numbers here. In 2019, uh, according to Statista Research Department, and based on on census data, the per capita personal income for the United States of America was $56,663. That means if you take all of the money earned by all the people in America and divide it by the population, uh, that's what it works out to be. Now, the, the wealthiest uh, per capita incomes fall to the District of Columbia at $84,500, Connecticut at $79,000, Massachusetts at $75,000, and so on and so forth. Um, but yet, when you're, you're speaking about the, the person who ha has made his bones on you know, uh, blocking and obstructing and delaying and distracting from those policies that would benefit working people when you look at his state which is Kentucky their per capita income is forty four thousand seventeen dollars now mind you and and again I'm I'm using Mitch McConnell as an example because he is the poster child for this um, you know Mitch McConnell himself is is worth some forty million dollars so you know poverty is is not a factor for him or for the, the vast majority of, of senators and Congress people. Um, if you look at, uh, for Democrat, uh, Joe Manchin, his state is next to last on the list at $42,300 per capita income. Uh, and yet, you know, he is obstructing on, from the Democrat side, uh, legislation that would definitely provide, you know, aid to the people of his state. Um, to put it into another uh, similar perspective, if you look at the poverty rate for states, and you know you can go to the Census Department and you know type in the keyword poverty rate, and you'll you'll get the list of you know the states and territories of the United States and what their poverty rate was in 2019, which is when the last data is available for. And for all of the United States, the 2019 poverty rate was 10.5%. If we stay with our, our you know, good friend from Kentucky, Mr. McConnell, his state's poverty rate in 2019 was 16.3%. Um, you know, down from five years prior at 17.1%, but still uh, six points higher than the national rate. If you look at West Virginia, and by the way, Kentucky ranks 48th out of 53 states and territories. Um, West Virginia ranks at 46th, uh, and again, that's uh, Joe Manchin, Democrat. He's at 16%. Uh, Texas the home of our good friend, Senator Cruz. He's at 13.6%. Uh, let's see, North Carolina, 13.6%. Alabama, 15.5%. The state of Georgia, 
is at 13.3%. And again, that's a five point drop from 2014. Uh, let's see, New York is at 13%. Uh, if we go up toward the top of the list, New Hampshire has the lowest poverty rate by, in 2019 at 7.3%, followed by Utah, Maryland, Minnesota, New Jersey, Colorado, uh, Hawaii and Massachusetts, Washington and Virginia, all in and around uh, between nine and 10%. So why, why do I give you these numbers? Well, again, when you look at issues and the information we're given in terms of what the American people think is most important and what needs to get done, you know, by overwhelming numbers, and, and these are, are both Democrat and Republican issues, and yet the elected congressmen and senators, and even at the state level, seem to just you know, walk past these overwhelming majorities and vote along some other conscious lines of thinking. Uh, it, it makes you wonder why we sent them there in the first place. We are supposed to have sent them there to do the people's work, to do what we want them to do while they're in that elected office. What apparently seems to happen is that, you know, they promise us they're going to do what we're sending them there to do, you know, up, down, left, right, and sideways when they're running for office. Once they get into office, all of that seems to uh, take a very far back back seat to, you know, other constituencies that seem to have their ear. You know, side note, I'm, I'm of the belief that our elected officials should kind of be like NASCAR drivers in that they should have the, the logos of all their sponsors on their clothing so that, you know, when they're standing up on camera or when they're being interviewed, we can see exactly you know, where they're getting money from, you know, whether it's, you know, the Heritage Foundation or, you know, Exxon Mobil or, you know, whoever, you know, Google, uh, Alibaba, whoever is, is shipping them money uh, to influence their decisions. They need to, to wear that, you know, like, like, a, like a suit or at a minimum, perhaps like the news chirons on TV that you see the, the scrolling uh, news clips that played, you know, when you're watching media, uh, maybe there should be one that shows, you know, Senator Joe Blow from XYZ State, you know, is, is sponsored by, you know, uh, McDonald's, is sponsored by, you know, Quaker State, is sponsored by, you know, the, the I don't know, the Heritage Foundation, you know, whatever so that it's clear when you are listening to them who they're listening to. So, you know, just that thought. But to get back to what I was saying, you know, it, I find it curious that, you know, senators, even from, you know, the more prosperous states, do not seem, and when I say senators, I mean senators, congresspeople, state senators, state congresspeople, uh, probably all the way down to your local mayor and city council, um, don't seem to reflect the pure will of the people, which is the basis for how our representative democracy is supposed to work. Um, you know, they, they get into office, and it seems like that promise they made to us on the stump of, I'm going to get there, and I'm going to do what you want me to do, and I'm going to be your representative in Congress, that seems to fade to near zero once they get into office, you know, officially. Now, I'm not painting all Congress people and all uh, state legislators and, and, you know, senators and all of that with the same, you know, broad brush. But what I am saying is that Pretty much, no, no matter who you listen to, from whatever party they represent, uh, it, it seems that, you know, that, that care for the people seems to fade. Uh, the further away we get from a concluded election, and then seems to miraculously get re-energized the closer we get to an upcoming election. 
Um, so, it, you know, it's something, something to ponder, something to keep in the back of your mind when you're listening to your senator or your, your, um, your federal congressperson uh, or your state senator, your state congress uh, person speaking to you. And it seems like, well, that's not why I sent you there. You know, look into, you know, where their money's coming from. Um, there's, there's a website you can go check. It's called opensecrets.org. And you can enter your politician's name and it will show you who their donors of record are. Uh, I recommend that you do that for your, your, your federal senators, your, your congressional delegation, uh, your governors, and so forth, so that you have a better sense of exactly who is paying for their attention. You know, and, and this goes to another contentious issue that periodically surfaces, uh, particularly around election time, when the subject of campaign finance comes up. And we've heard this discussion going on, you know, forever. Uh, where does the money come from that purchases the influence of our elected officials? So something to think about, something to, you know, to do some homework on, to, to dig in, as we say, to dig deeper, dig wider. Find out who your senators, who your congresspeople, who your state senators, your governors, uh, who your state legislators, who are they beholden to? And then ask yourself, who are they supposed to be beholden to? You know, just an, an, an interesting point uh, of discussion. Um, and, and speaking of numbers, you know, one of the things, and, and particularly where we were talking, as we have been for the last uh, year now, since the the stimulus checks came out in March of last year. Um, there's been talk that says, you know, these stimulus payments will raise this group or that group out of poverty. Well, let's let's flesh that out a little bit. Uh, let me give you some information here about what makes up the the quote poor people close quote here in the United States. And and again simply because the 2020 census is still being processed, we have 2019 data to go on. But according to the U.S. Census, the official poverty rate, as I mentioned, in the United States was 10.5%. That means that 10.5% of the Americans were living below the poverty threshold. Uh, now that's down from 11.8% in 2018 and down from 15.1% in 2010. However, in 2019, 34 million Americans lived in poverty. Uh, and if, you know, you listen to the media and you listen to, you know, the elected officials, they would have you believe that the overwhelming majority of poor people in this country are people of color. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. All right. So let me give you some facts and figures. All right. According to 2019 data, women made up nearly 56% of people who were in poverty in 2019. Of those living in poverty, 41.8% were white, non-Hispanic, while 27.9% were Hispanic of any race, 23.5% were black, and 4.4% were Asian. 180 degree difference from what the media and the news and you know the talking heads out there would have you believe. Um, in addition, 26.3% of those living in poverty were under 18. That means more than 10 million children in the United States are in poverty. All right, and there's another 12.3% of those in poverty were aged 65 years or older. Now, uh, another myth that, you know, people not born in this country, immigrants, uh, foreign-born, were the, the majority of the poor people in this country. That's not true either. According to the census in 2019, nearly 71% of those living in poverty were born in the United States. 
14% of foreign-born people were in poverty, and of those foreign-born people, 5% were naturalized citizens and 9% were non-citizens. So, you know, it, 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 again, where is our information coming from? What is the truth? We have to dig deep behind the numbers. All right. As I said, this is 2019 data from the U.S. Census Bureau. You can go there. You can pull it up. You can see for yourself. Um, the states with the highest poverty rates, uh, five of the top 10, Mississippi, 19.4%. Louisiana, 18.4%. New Mexico, 16%. Arkansas, 15%. West Virginia, Senator Joe Manchin, 14.9%. Kentucky, Senator Mitch McConnell, 14.6%. All right, Alabama, 14.4%. South Carolina, 13.9%. The District of Columbia is 13.6%. And Georgia, 13.5%. So lowest poverty rate, I'll give you just a couple. New Hampshire, 4.9%. Minnesota, 6.8%. Delaware, 6.9%. Utah, 7.1%. New Jersey 7.3, Maryland 7.5, Washington 7.8, Massachusetts 8.1, and both Kansas and Wisconsin 8.5%. So what does that mean? It means that the information that we are being given from mainstream media and from you know the the various politicians and you know their surrogates uh, are painting an incorrect picture of who the poor people are in this country. Clearly, women are the majority of poor people in this country. 42% of poor people in this country are not minority, they are white. 26.3% uh, of people living in poverty are under 18. It's 10 million children who are living below the poverty level. What does that mean? Well, the poverty levels in this country for a single person uh, you are considered living below the poverty level if you make less than $12,880 a year or about $1,073 a month. For a two-person household, that number goes to $17,420, uh, $1,450 a month. For a three-person household, $2,190, about $1,925 a month and so forth. For a family of four, $26,500 a year uh, or less, and you are in poverty as defined by the federal government. And that's at $2,208 a month. Now let's put something on the other side of that. The average rent in the United States, and this is across all 50 states and territories, is $1,463 a month. The average mortgage for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is $1,140 a month, and the average mortgage is $1,646 a month for a 15-year uh, mortgage. So go back to what I was saying. If you're single, you're, you're in the poverty level at $1,073 a month, but your rent on average would be $1,463 a month. And that doesn't include utilities, food, car payment, all the other things. So if you're, you know, at the poverty level, you're poor, you're struggling, you know, which is why people, you know, have to work multiple jobs, which is why there is such a heated debate about raising the minimum wage. So there's a lot of work to do in this country. It's clear. Last point I want to make before we wrap the show is I spoke last year, late last year in one of my shows about the need for a third political party in this country. I think the discussions that have been held and the debates that have been held, uh, again, using the Senate as the poster child, show clearly that such a third party is desperately needed if we are going to move our Congress, our House, and our Senate into something that gets something done. Right now, it's 50-50. A third party would need to hold uh, between 10 and 14 seats in the Senate in order to form a voting block that would mandate further and deeper discussion 
on you know any piece of legislation because neither of the two major parties would have a clear majority without the cooperation of the third party same thing in the house uh you know the democrats have an eight seat majority you know after the midterms coming up that majority may be gone or it may flop to the republicans having four or five and or and having one or two seat majority in the senate all of this back and forth and, and doing an undoing of legislation that seems to plague our political system uh, would be addressed and, if not solved, at least made less impactful if there was a third voting party in our government so that in order for things to happen, a clear coalition would need to be formed. Uh, this is something I, I believe personally, I think it is something that is long overdue. I think it is something that this country can do. I think the current political climate and the current climate of the people in this country are moving in the direction where a third political party, perhaps it, you know, hello, progressives out there. Uh, this may be your opportunity to begin the process of swinging a large number of voters into a third party. Now realize it is gonna take uh, a few election cycles, both midterm and general, in order for that party to become strong enough to, to be meaningful at the national level. But at the same token, it can also become meaningful a lot quicker at the local level. So I just wanted to leave you with that to think about. We're gonna talk more about third parties uh, through the course of, of this year on Fired Up. Uh, it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and I want to bring you much more information and consideration on why I think that a third political party in this country is becoming something of a necessity. So on that thought, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the show. I want to thank you all, as I do each week, for tuning in. I do appreciate it. Uh, if you have comments or questions, let me know what you think about a third party in this country. Send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com uh, and let me know what your thoughts are. Uh, so until then, please stay safe, wear your mask, wash your hands, follow the protocol. When your turn comes to get a vaccine, please go get your vaccination. Help us beat this pandemic into submission. Look forward to seeing all of you and we will talk again as we always do in seven days. Take care, everybody. Today